Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today we'll hear from Theo Rio Francos and the politics of Ecuador as a new president is about to take office, and Landon Frim and Harrison Fluss take apart the philosophy behind the alt-right. First, Ecuador. Beginning with the election of Hugo Chavez as president of Venezuela in 1999, Latin America experienced a turn to the left following the grim decades of the 1980s and 1990s. By the middle of the last decade, about two-thirds of Latin Americans were living under leftish governments. At decade's end, however, things started souring and the pink tide has largely receded. One place the pink tide has not yet receded, however, is Ecuador. In February, Ecuador held elections to pick the successor to President Rafael Correa, who would serve the maximum of two terms. The winner in two rounds of voting was Lenin Moreno, who would served as Correa's vice president from 2007 through 2013. The opposition cried fraud to little effect. Here is Theoria Francos, an assistant professor of political science at Providence College, to tell us more. What do you make of these allegations of fraud? Are they going to go anywhere? I really don't see them going anywhere. The election was monitored by regional and international agencies, and the campaign has not produced any evidence, and the OAS and, and other groups that monitor the elections have said that they were clean. Um, and there have been no real issues with fraud in any recent Ecuadorian elections. So, so I don't see them going anywhere. It was tight, but I think it was a fair and free election. Did the, uh, the tightness of it uh, surprise you? It, it didn't surprise me within the context of the campaign season, I should say, because it was tight all along. Um, what is, I guess, could be surprising is that this was the first really competitive election that Ecuador has had for president um, since Correa was first elected in 2006. So in that broader sort of historical span, it's interesting that that finally Correa, well, really his, you know, his, his successor, Lenin Moreno, had to campaign and, and, and went up against a formidable opposition. But if you've been following sort of some of the issues that have plagued the administration and especially the economic crisis, that also is not shocking. But that, that's the more interesting thing, less that it was tight recently and more that it's part of a, somewhat of a longer decline in, in the popularity of the Korea administration. Parenthetically, the name Lenin is not uncommon in Latin America. Does it have political significance? Not at the individual level necessarily, in that one's parents choose one's name, right? But it often has to do with the fact that in the days of the Soviet Union, lots of people either looked up to Soviet figures and or actually got their education in the Soviet Union. If you're on the left, you could do these sort of education exchanges. So they would name their kids Stalin or Lenin um, or Mao or things like that. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's reasonably common. The pink tide, as it's been called, has receded across Latin America. It hasn't quite in Ecuador. Uh, how does the Ecuadorian picture fit in with that larger uh, regional uh, move against uh, the left? I mean, I think that there are a number of regional factors, but um, as you're kind of already pointing out, to understand the given sort of balance of power between right and left, you have to kind of look at some of the domestic dynamics as well. The regional dynamic, um, or really the global factor of the end of the commodity boom, I think really can't be underestimated in terms of both how it buoyed leftist administrations and allowed them to actually have the fiscal room to govern from the left, 
and fulfill campaign promises, um, but also how the end of that boom and a number of other economic troubles since around 2014 have also made it difficult now to govern from the left. And you see that in Ecuador's most recent budget, which is austere, according to the words of the finance minister. So I think that that, that sort of political economy of, of commodity-dependent left populism is has some parameters. And the, the main parameter is that there's resource revenues flowing. I think that's one factor. Another factor, and this depends more on the case, and is definitely the case for Ecuador, though is much less so for Bolivia, is whether or not the political parties were well institutionalized. And I think that for various reasons that Alianza País, which is Correa's party and Lenin's party, is not well institutionalized. It doesn't have cadre formation. It doesn't have territorial organization. Though people support Correa as like an individual politician, there isn't like that sense of partisan attachment to the party itself. You know, that can work for like winning elections, you know, to just sort of have an electoral vehicle, but it's not sustainable politically over time. The story is very different, and I won't get into Bolivia because it's not the topic of our show, but just to say that there are contrasts, the story is very different with the party mass movement towards socialism in Bolivia, which comes from a sort of grassroots bottom-up local party-building effort over decades and, and then resulted in Morales' victory um, rather than the other way around. Well, you mentioned resources, and they, they've been crucial uh, to a lot of these uh, left governments in Latin America over the last decade or so. Uh, and they were hoping to use uh, the proceeds of uh, resource exports, uh, oil in the countries that have oil, commodities in the countries that don't have oil, to finance uh, redistributionist schemes. Uh, Ecuador followed that model. Definitely. I mean, the, 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 the progress in terms of socioeconomic indicators is amazing and undeniable. And the commodity boom is a big part of that. But as we all know, it's not enough just to have revenues coming into a country. The government needs to decide on budget priorities. And Alianza País has done a very good job at prioritizing social an important subset of social needs. I think there are some that have still gone unfulfilled. But in terms of slashing poverty, in terms of lowering the income inequality, the Gini coefficient for income inequality, in terms of improving access to health care, to education, to clean water, to sanitation. I mean, it's a remarkable. I first started going to Ecuador in 2008, right at the beginning of the administration. And I can see the change. I mean, let alone someone who, you know, is a lower income person in Ecuador that whose life has been really improved by these policies. So they're they're basically increase huge increase in spending in, in um, social services and in public infrastructure. And the combination has has improved access to all those services. And then in addition to that, there's an increased um, monthly welfare cash kind of transfer payments that have just buoyed incomes and, and consumption for, for lower income people. And the, the progress is undeniable, as I said. It, I think poverty was hovering around 50% when Correa got into office, and now it's in the low 30s. So, But on the other hand, it's sort of stagnated there because of the commodity bust and because of other sort of problems, I think, with the economic model, they sort of hit perhaps how low poverty can get within the within the current parameters. Looking around the world, if you look at commodity exports, I think it's especially true of oil states, they, they seem to produce a, a social structure with an oligarchy, a uh, very uh, often reactionary oligarchy, and then uh, they produce a lot of poverty and toxic waste uh, and not much generalized prosperity. Before the Korea government, did, did Ecuador um, fit that picture? It certainly did. Ecuador was a tremendously, and still is in some respects, depending what indicators you look at, was a tremendously unequal country. 
Um, and sort of getting towards the, the toxic part of what you were, of your question, the destruction that oil wreaked in the northern Amazon and might wreak in the southern Amazon now that oil extraction is expanding has been terrible for human health, for any alternatives to extraction, like agriculture is just unsustainable if the, oil, if the soil and water are contaminated. So it really was um, destructive in many, in many ways and not the revenues from oil did not further human development in any sense. That Some of that changed with Korea. What what changed was that the oil revenues were for the first time really channeled towards serving social needs. Part of what also allowed for that fiscal room to, to maneuver was that Korea, one of the first things he did was default on $3.2 billion of debt that he rightfully considered illegitimate. He wasn't servicing debt, which was the main thing that oil revenues used to go to. And he had much higher, you know, historically high prices to work with. So that that gave him a lot of room for social spending and for some redistribution of, of income, at least um, through that. What's still the same in the picture that you've painted is that Ecuador, in terms of land tenure, and also, though, in terms of sort of the concentration of capital and oligarchic business groups, still remains very unequal. Less so in income, but but in assets and in capital and in land, which we know are very important um, um, in terms of looking at inequality, it remains stubbornly sort of persistently unequal. And the other thing that's still the same about what you said is that now oil extraction and, and the new sort of large sector, large scale mining sector is taking place under a leftist administration, but that doesn't make it environmentally friendly in any way. Um, and, and from the point of view of the communities directly affected by extraction, um, not only does it not make a huge difference to many of them that now this is, you know, oil extraction under socialism of the 21st century, because they're sort of still dealing with the same contamination, but they've actually really turned against the Korea administration. Um, and I'll just note quickly that that in terms of the election results for both the first and second round of the recent presidential election, where Lenin Moreno did worst was in the southern, southeastern Amazonian provinces, where there's been the most expansion of resource extraction and pretty getting pretty violent kind of levels of, of conflict around extractive projects. There was an explosion of indigenous activism in Ecuador in the 90s, uh, which helped pave the way for the Correa uh, election. What was Correa's relation to those indigenous activists and how did the relation continue and where does it all stand now? The relationship has basically been bad, um, with a few exceptions. I mean, early on, but when Correa was first um, had first put himself out there that he was going to run for president earlier in, in 2006, there was this moment where there was potentially going to be an alliance between Correa's party, Alianza País, and Pachacutic, the indigenous party, um, who's connected to the indigenous federation. So that that fell through kind of because of internal squabbling. And then even though important indigenous leaders and the indigenous federation itself supported Correa in the second round um, when he was running against a conservative um, in, in 2006, really starting a couple years into his administration, the relationship between indigenous movements and Korea was rocky. And I think that's for a few reasons. One is that the indigenous movement sort of peaked in the late late 90s, I would say, in terms of its political power, which was tremendous. It was considered by Latin American scholars to be not only the most powerful indigenous movement on the continent, but potentially the most powerful social movement because they were able to depose multiple presidents and really push for real policy changes and stall neoliberal reforms. I mean, incredible levels of capacity. So that kind of peaked 
in the 90s and and for various reasons, including that they supported an unsuccessful coup um, um, and, and other issues, they, they really declined in, in capacity. So I think that Korea's strategy was that he didn't need indigenous support, not indigenous support, individual indigenous voters he needs, um, but he didn't need the support of indigenous organizations in order to win because he saw that they were in a moment of political decline. And totally opposite to what happened in Bolivia, where indigenous activism and indigenous organizations is central to the Morales administration, Korea um, and Alianza País have kind of occupied the space on the left, initially opened up by the indigenous movement, but they've been able to sort of crowd out. Now, the, and then the, the upshot of that has been that tremendous polarization and conflict between indigenous groups and the Korea administration throughout throughout his um, 10 years in power. And a lot of that has centered on the politics of resource extraction and on the lack of respect for constitutionally recognized indigenous rights. I'm speaking with Theoria Francos, an assistant professor of political science at Providence College. The uh, Venezuelan elite never stopped giving Chavez a hard time. How do the, uh, the elites in Ecuador uh, treat Correa? You know, I think it depends on what segment of the elites you're you're talking about. What's really interesting, and this kind of has to do with those that persistent inequality and the consolidation of, of capital that I mentioned that's occurred under the Correa administration, um, which is a little surprising for a self-proclaimed socialist government. I think some segments of the elite have benefited. And to the extent that they're um, rational about their economic interests and don't just like hate him because he's a leftist, they actually have supported or at least not defected from the Korea administration. However, large segments of the elite, both for ideological reasons, because they're conservative, because they're anti-redistribution, because they're neoliberal or whatever, or because their specific sectors have not benefited as much from the Korea administration, are certainly opposed to him. And then sort of making that um, um, exacerbating that, um, and this is similar to Venezuela and Bolivia and lots of the other cases, the the media, aside from the state-owned media, the, the media outlets, the primary ones, are really anti-government, which, you know, in some cases can generate good reporting sometimes just because, like, they have that critical independence, but for the most part just produces a lot of hit stories against the government and not always with a lot of um, substantiation and, and reality. But but definitely, the I would say the elite is divided in Ecuador in an interesting way that I'm not sure quite is the same in the other um, sort of more radical left administrations in, on the continent. I was at a conference at the Rockefeller House up in Westchester a few years ago, which was a bizarre thing, uh, about uh, climate change and sustainability in the house that Carbon built. One of the guests was a Bolivian diplomat. And he was talking about how they had just given nature standing in their judicial system to, to sue. And at the same time, he was talking about developing oil and gas resources in Bolivia. In the Q&A part, I asked him, you know, what about this contradiction? I mean, it's really nice that nature has staying in your courts, but you're planning to develop all these carbon resources that would be very damaging to not only the, the ecology of Bolivia, but the world. Um, how do you resolve that contradiction? And he, his only thing he could say was, we're a poor country and we have no choice. How did Correa and the people around him and you know the, the party, and, and how do people in, in Ecuador think about this? Yeah, this is probably um, one of the more complex aspects of the of the, the past 10 years um, in Ecuador. Of course, Ecuador has a long history of being resource dependent, commodity dependent, um, uh, dependent on extractive industries, primarily oil, um, and a long history of popular environmental movements based in those com directly affected communities, not always against oil extraction, but 
wanting to limit it at least. And I would say actually more recently under the Korea administration, those movements have gotten more anti-extraction um, in the face of a, a leftist government that is avidly pro-extraction as a route to development. But in terms of that, that tension between progressive rights of nature and the development model, I mean, in Ecuador, Ecuador's constitution is the first to recognize nature as a subject of rights. I've actually witnessed um, when I was doing my field work, I witnessed court proceedings where activists brought cases to provincial courts uh, using the rights of nature against like an extractive company. And they really went nowhere. So there's very little sort of actual enforcement of that right. I think that the the effect that that right has had of having that right on paper has been to sort of give some legitimacy and, and actually radicalize um, um, movements who can now claim like actually nature is a subject of right. So it's had some effects, but not in terms of enforcement on the government end. In terms of the conflict between environment and development or between like climate change goals and human need goals, you know, it's obviously undeniable that there's no way to make any progress on climate change while continuing to extract uh, fossil fuels at the rate that humans are doing so. I don't know if you or your listeners are aware of this, but there was a big campaign um, led by the Korea administration um, on the international stage to ask donors from other countries to give them money in exchange for not exploiting the oil in the Yasuni National Park. Um, when they didn't get as many donations as they wanted, the government has basically decided to go ahead and extract the oil anyway, which, you know, on the one hand, you can see the logic of it. And it's the same logic of the Bolivian um, official that you mentioned, which is that we have these resources, we have people in poverty, and what else are we supposed to do? Um, and that's compelling in certain ways. On the other hand, the, the, the problem with that argument is that it doesn't build towards um, a transition to a post-extractive economy, which is ostensibly, according to the government's own development plans, is ostensibly the goal. There are many reasons that, in addition to environmental catastrophe and ecological crisis, like there are many reasons why resource rents are not the best thing for your economy to depend on. The number one is that commodity prices are volatile and you never know whether you're going to be in a boom or bust cycle. And so it's, it's not the best thing to base your entire economy on. Um, so the Korea administration, people within it at least know that and have are trying to plan this transition. But there's a lot, I would say, and this is borne out by like tons of interviews that I did and, and my you know friends of mine who are who are political analysts in Ecuador, that there really isn't being strides as much effort, let me say, put it that way, made towards um, transitioning the economy towards a non-extractive fiscal base as there is in trying to get new contracts with foreign firms for um, for oil and mining projects. The contrast between the, or the conflict rather, between the short term and the long term is really striking. I remember I talked to a guy who was a uh, an official in Michael Manley's finance ministry in Jamaica back in the, the 70s, I guess it was. Uh, and he said, you know, it's all very nice to talk about long-term development goals and getting out of the thumb, out from under the thumb of the World Bank. But on the other hand, you have no idea what it's like to sit in the finance ministry and have to come up with $100 million next week. Uh, I can really appreciate the, the pressure, what that means. Right. And, and, and the thing is that for the past several years, actually, spending has even outpaced um, resource revenues. So even despite all of the money coming in, at least for the first several years of the Korea administration, the, the spending and on, on social services and on infrastructure really just outstripped what was available in terms of revenues. And then the options to deal with that situation are limited. You can either extract more and faster, which usually involves some deregulation, which actually, despite sort of putting in these more statist contract models, 
um, Ecuador has deregulated like the mining sector a bit um, in order to try to attract investment there. Um, so one is to extract more and to do it faster. That's one. Um, and the other is to just take out loans. And since Ecuador was more or less shut out of you know, the sort of IFI international financial institutions because of defaulting and kind of shut out of bond markets, though it actually reentered recently, it turned to China, who it's now, depending on, on, on what numbers you read, Ecuador is anywhere between 10 to $15 billion in debt to China. Some of that debt is actually debt for oil swaps. So that debt itself is not a different source of revenue from unrelated to oil. It actually exacerbates the oil dependency and further in debts Ecuador at the same time. So they've been managing the, uh, the decline in oil prices by borrowing? Have they cut back in the social programs? They have. The last, as I kind of, I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the segment, that the current um, budget, um, the 2016 budget, was called by the finance minister uh, an austere budget. And um, they cut $800 million in addition to a prior $1.4 billion cut and they also cut $800 million in pension subsidies. So, I mean, $800 million in cuts to services. There was a prior $1.4 billion cut, $800 million cut in pension subsidies. I mean, and cutting pensions for a leftist government is like, you know, basically they're, they're scraping the barrel in terms of what they can cut without totally alienating their constituency. And actually what's really impressive about about the whole past decade of, of, of reforms and changes in Ecuador is that they, they won despite this. The dips in both in Correa's popularity ratings and in Lenin Moreno's um, um, like electoral chances before the actual runoff very much coincided and closely tracked um, the economic crisis. So Ecuador entered into a recession in 2015 and um, has been pretty stagnant since. So the, the dips in popularity really track very closely onto these economic problems, both the general recession, which affects anyone, and then how that recession has affected the state budget, which is going to particularly affect poorer people. But despite that, Lenin Moreno managed to kind of squeeze out a victory. And I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, in that moment of of crisis, um, you know, that did make the government less popular, but it also made people scared to sort of go down a neoliberal route, which had caused tremendous financial crisis in the late 90s. It, it, it kind of was a mixed bag in a way. It reduced the, the government's popularity, but it also um, it also made people worried about losing the benefits that they do enjoy. What do you expect from a Moreno administration? Uh, is it I hope it's not going to be like Maduro has been to Chavez, a, a time of devolution and crisis. What's the outlook? I'm as curious as you are in, in a sense because his campaign promises. So I just want to note one one quick thing, which is that in between the first election and the and the the second round, the runoff that he won, in a way the campaigns got more polarized. Before, in certain in certain senses, in the longer campaign season, they were kind of both trying to appeal to like quote-unquote kind of centrist voters who might have been unhappy with aspects of Korea. Um, so Lenin was trying to win them back and Lasso was trying to get them to defect. Um, so there was this playing to the center. That really changed between the first and second rounds where Lasso became much more of a neoliberal candidate. Um, in, in a, I mean, he always was, but in a more explicit sense. And, and Lenin Moreno emphasized even more the expansion of social spending that he would inaugurate under his administration. And so some of those promises, just given the current budget constraints, seem totally undoable. Like he said, he's going to triple 
the monthly welfare payment from 50 to $150. And I'm just thinking like, I don't know where this month, I mean, that's great. I would, that's, I totally support that policy, but I'm not sure where the money is coming from. And, and I'll just note that his vice president, who is actually Korea's favorite as an, as a successor, but given some internal disputes in the party ended up being the vice president, Jorge Glass, other than being one of Korea's vice presidents, he was also uh, a minister of strategic sectors. He's like a soup was a super minister of oil and mining and all that. So, you know, Lenin Moreno's vice president is very likely to seek an, an expansion in extraction and sort of guide the policy in that direction um, as in order to fund these budget gaps. Whereas Lenin Moreno promised on when he accepted his his victory um, um, on April 2nd that he would dialogue more with indigenous and environmental groups. So I have no idea. You know, I could see him being more conciliatory. I could also because his personality is sort of more conciliatory than Korea. I could see due to his uh, the vice presidential candidate Glass that he might try to expand extraction to make up for the budget debt. The, the budget deficit. I mean, I, I could, and the debt to China is growing like every second. I mean, I'm not sure. They're in a very, very difficult situation. Um, and in order to retain support, I think they need to do two things. Basically, they do need to keep, um, um, at least maintain, if not expand, social spending. And they need to build um, a, a party with real partisan attachments and territorial organization and maybe do that in alliance with social movements instead of in sort of competition with them. I was Theoria Francos, an assistant professor of political science at Providence College. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the ineffable me by Sonic Youth. Next, the philosophy of the alt-right. Yes, there's actually a semi-rigorous philosophy associated with this latest iteration of white supremacist neo-fascism. Here are Harrison Fluss, who teaches at St. John's, and Landon Frim, who teaches at St. Joseph's, both of whom went to graduate school with one of the trend's leading lights, Jason Reza Giorgiani, to tell us more. The first voice you'll hear is Landon Frim's. Those of us who uh, derived a tremendous amount of pleasure uh, in the uh, repeated loop of watching uh, Richard Spencer get punched may not realize that there's actually a philosophy uh, associated with a serious professional level philosophy associated with the alt-right. You guys went to school with one of its leading lights. Tell us, who is this fellow? I briefly, and and, uh, my colleague Harrison List briefly, did attend uh, Stony Brook, the doctoral program in philosophy, with uh, Jason Giorgiani. We know him primarily through his writings, uh, but he was always interested in some kind of critique of contemporary liberalism. While we were at Stony Brook together, he was interested in the uh, Green Movement, these movements towards greater uh, liberalization and democracy in Iran. 
And it seems like some of the disappointment in how that worked out uh, led to Jason's turn towards the extreme right and the alt-right. As I said, most of, most of how we know him today is through his writings, through his book uh, that we wrote about in, in the Jacobin piece, um, Prometheus and Atlas. Stony Brook is something of an outlier in American academic philosophy, right? Yes, it's one of the premier institutions of continental philosophy in the American Academy, which is predominantly analytic or Anglophone philosophy. And Stony Brook specializes by and large in French and German philosophy from the 20th century. So a lot of, a lot of uh, contemporary uh, philosophy from the continent would be uh, existentialism, post-structuralism, phenomenology, and also things with uh, much more of a sort of specific political edge. So postmodern political philosophy, post-colonialism, critical theory, critical theory. There is this division as well within continental departments between those types of people who are interested in more contemporary stuff and people who are interested in the history of continental philosophy. So going back to Spinoza, Kant, Hegel. But this is not the soil from which you would expect a, uh, a neo-fascist white supremacist to grow, is it? It is and it isn't. And, and that's why, for us, uh, Jason Giorgiani is such an interesting figure and worth writing about. What's really fascinating about Jason is that, yes, you're correct. On the one hand, he's this far-right figure who seems completely uh, misplaced in the Continental Department that's populated by people who usually offer left-wing critiques of liberalism. But the reason why Jason is so significant and interesting is because he takes any of the often post-structuralist, post-modern, pragmatist philosophies that you get in a generally left-leaning department like Stony Brook, mm -hmm. carries them logically to their end, and uh, ends up with an, an extremely right-wing ideology. So Jason is interesting not primarily because Jason is interesting, but more so because he shines a light back on the intellectual currents within left academia and, and shows where some of those currents may very well lead us. Yeah, I want to get to that towards the end, but let's, what, what is this philosophy that he propounds? He's going back, according to his own lights, to the original projects of Friedrich Nietzsche and Martin Heidegger, to be a little vulgar about it, were philosophers of the right. They rejected modernity, they rejected feminism, socialism, liberal democracy. And in continental philosophy, the way that Nietzsche and Heidegger are usually taught is to ignore their political dimensions, to ignore uh, those other unsavory aspects of their philosophy, them. to sanitize them. This is part of what Domenico Lacerdo calls the hermeneutics of innocence, that you think you can just talk about Nietzschean concepts like becoming or the eternal return without their political effects. And the same thing with Heideggerian Dasein. And what's interesting about Jason is that even though he's exceptional for Stony Brook's context, he isn't alone in the alt-right of a postmodern fascist philosopher. You see this with Nick Land, who came out of a very continental context as a Bataille and Deleuze scholar. You also see it with Alexander Dugan in Russia, who thinks of himself as a kind of postmodern neo-traditionalist philosopher that's trying to overcome modernity and to overcome universalism. And the Enlightenment legacy is something inherently racist against his own peculiar Russian Orthodox traditions. Could you lay out his philosophy in a paragraph or two? Where Jason's philosophy ends up, his bottom line, is that he seems to want to support something like an Aryan imperium, an Aryan empire. This is why, although to the, uh, to the uninitiated, 
it seems contradictory that this supporter of an Aryan politics has a, has a Persian last name and uh, half of his ancestry is Persian. But it's Jason's contention, again, that Persia originally was this Aryan paradise, right? it had an Aryan golden age before uh, two instances of forced miscegenation, as he puts it. This plays into the, to the white nationalist narrative of uh, white genocide. How does he get there? Well, he favors an identity politics in general, and not merely an identity politics which posits different social identities, but they really are different worldviews. In fact, he draws on Heidegger in talking about the universe is actually not a universe, but a pluriverse. The universe is disintegrated. It is many different things according to the different Daseins, the different cultural outlooks that exist. It is a, a war of the worlds, right? And this pluralizing of existence is uh, the reason why he wants to draw so heavily on certain strands of continental philosophy. There can't be a common human identity. There can't be a common intelligible world. There is the very specific, very particular white Aryan outlook, which has to actually have an authentic self-understanding of itself mm -hmm. and therefore ultimately a, a mortal combat with all other worldviews and a particularistic colonizing of the world after its own specific, unique pattern. That's, that's the soil from which his uh, virulent politics emerges. Mm -hmm. A quick uh, question about my own ethnic um, narcissism here, but you know, I have half Italian ancestry. Are, are we Aryan or are we uh, part of the, the lower orders? I think in terms of practical, tactical politics, it depends on what side of the barricades you are on in a particular situation. So, of course, with Nietzsche and even Hitler, the Japanese are honorary Aryans. When Mussolini needs to be closer to the Nazis, he calls uh, them their blood brothers and the Axis, and eventually Jews are kicked out of the fascist movement. So these things are very fluid. They're fluid according to a sort of crude uh, pragmatism and, and really a cynicism. Whereas during the mid-20th century, Germanophiles would look down upon people of Slavic background. Now today, especially with Dugan, but also uh, Lana Loktev as well, we have this Russophile tendency within the right. white identitarian movements. Right. Richard Spencer said Russia is the last white country with a white government in power. That's worth supporting. And, and part of this undoubtedly uh, reflects the politics of today, where many of the Slavic Eastern European countries are the de facto boundaries, the barriers of uh, mass immigration from the Middle East, uh, the Near East and North Africa. And Putin is looked at by Americans uh, of the alt-right persuasion as this sort of white political savior mm -hmm. doing battle for Western civilization. Restraining the forces of decadence and nihilism from liberal society, which is very much an echo of Nietzsche's appreciation of the Russian Empire in Twilight of the Idols, where he says at least Russia has not been infected by liberalism and socialism. Then they got the, the Bolsheviks, though. A brief ex exception in that grand Russian history. Do women fit into this picture? They certainly do. And we should mention Sam Miller's article, uh, Lipstick Fascism, for Jacobin uh, Magazine on their website. And she details quite a bit how women play a role in this movement and how they accept their role as subordinate and auxiliary to men. 
We're also working with Sam, myself, and Landon on a broader alt-right project, a book project for how to not only understand the alt-right and not just talk about how disgusting they are, but to actually refute their arguments and how to actually fight them. Yeah, we're, we're looking to put together something like a practical manual to put into the hands of lay people, people who don't have the, the luxury to uh, uh, study this sort of thing all day, uh, but put into the hands of, of people the resources, the intellectual and practical resources to understand and combat uh, these political tendencies. Yeah. Giorgiani and his ilk are really not in love with uh, instrumental rationality and empirical reason, are they? They see themselves, or at least Jason does, after William James, as a radical empiricist. And the way he defines experience is very perspectival. It has nothing to do with an objective world out there. He accepts Heidegger's critique of Western rationality, objectivity, and he uses that to be as subjectivistic as he wants. This is, sort of on a practical level, something that's really important for people to understand, right? What the right used to do is attack science as such, right? Science goes against religious doctrine. Science doesn't allow me to believe in the sort of supernatural religious dogmas that, I, that I'd like to believe or that my community tells me uh, that it's necessary to believe in order to get into heaven. The alt-right and people especially of Jason's tendency look at that point of view as incredibly naive. So instead uh, of being out-and-out -out critics of empirical science, what they really are are false friends of science. In fact, they want to appear more scientific, mm. right? radically scientific, radically empiricist, and detach science from its rationalist moorings. We would say that in order to do science, we've got to accept something like a materialist view of the universe. We've got to accept cause and effect. We've got to accept in order to deal with things like controls and variables that things don't happen for no reason, mysteriously and spontaneously. Jason, following Paul Feyerabend, uh, people who consider themselves to be methodological anarchists, right? These, these extreme empiricists. Uh, Jason will say, no, 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 this is, this is far too restrictive uh, and doesn't allow for the creation of this, this romantic futurist society that they imagine, right? They want to sever empirical science from its rationalist moorings in order to do all the sort of supernatural science, all the sort mm. of basically unfounded race science that, that fits into their worldview. This is also a science that includes UFOs. Yes. Well, because, because why not? Why not UFOs? Why not posit that Yahweh or Allah or are space creatures? Why not, as he actually does, say that the Ark of the Covenant is, is a tracking device? Why not say that Joshua used a sonic boom to bring down the walls at, uh, in his conquest of uh, Jericho? There is no a priori anymore. There is no rationalist, materialist strictures anymore. So, so really, anything goes. Not to be ableist about this, but that's insane. Not to be ableist about it, but yes. <laughs> You're well, right. <laughs> he, he, wants, he wants to break down the barrier between what he thinks of as a more spiritual view of the universe and science. And he thinks the disease of this demarcation line between science and mysticism comes from Descartes from the scientific revolution, which he wants to deconstruct. He accepts Heidegger's critique of Cartesianism 
as a reductionist, and in order to do the kind of science that he wants, namely to talk about the paranormal, to talk about UFOs, you have to get rid of what he calls Cartesian a priori structures, namely principle of sufficient reason, determinism, etc. Every, every effect has a cause. You can't be A and not A at the same time. These basic things that are sort of baked into the cake of the mind of every three-year-old, right? <laughs> the things that allow for object permanence these are the things that must be scrupulously uprooted from scientific discourse if we're really to, to let science loose and, and, and allow it to bring all the conclusions that, that he desires. The point of the Jacobin article was not, look at this bizarre guy who came out of a continental department, who came out of this post-structuralist, post-modernist infused continental department, and ended up being a crazy racist and ended up being obsessed with UFOs. That wasn't our point. Our point instead was, look at how he's used, not all, but some of the tendencies of these uh, mid-century philosophies, these tendencies which have sought to throw the Enlightenment under the bus, which want to get rid of rational strictures and have just sort of an open respect for empiricism, lived experience. Look how he's skillfully and to a degree consistently used these insights of continental philosophy and opened the floodgates for all of his uh, UFO spoon-bending racialist nonsense. That was the voice of Landon Frim. I'm speaking with him and Harrison Fluss, two freshly minted professors of philosophy, about the thinking behind the alt-right. If you've communed with ghosts, or you claim you've communed with ghosts, then that actually qualifies as an empirical observation in his version of things. Absolutely. Well, of course, and this is straight from Fire Advent. And, and, and James. And James, right? James was, William James, the father, in many ways, of American pragmatism, was one of the early enthusiasts of the occult, the occult seances, seances uh, spiritualism. He was an enthusiast, not merely because he lived during this time period in American history, but because of his philosophy. Philosophy does matter. The ideas that you have in your head matter. What do his uh, colleagues, Richard Spencer and all those people who were shouting Heil Trump at that infamous meeting, what, what do they all make of this? They think that Jason adds a certain intellectual luster to their project. But some of them seem to be a bit skeptical of Jason. And I'm not talking about the main leadership so much, but maybe their constituency. So they're a little worried that Giorgiani is what they call a neocon entryist. Because he hates the Iranian regime so much, he wants to overthrow the mullahs in Iran, that they think that he might be co-opted by the Mossad or Zionist forces, and that he's actually arguing like a warmongering neocon. And Richard Spencer actually at that infamous Hail Trump MPI conference said, the one good thing about the Obama administration was the nuclear deal with Iran. So that was actually one of the things that Spencer and the alt-right at least most of them disagreed with Trump about, was this saber-rattling towards Iran. And geopolitically, because they are such fans of Putin, they back Putin's geostrategic alliances with Iran and Syria, and that makes Jason an outlier. Just a brief terminological uh, issue. Uh, you use the word alt-right. They use the word alt-right. But some people on the left are critical of that. They just say they're a bunch of old-fashioned white supremacists and neo-Nazis, and let's use the real words instead of their uh, shiny euphemism. What do you say? Well, I would say uh, in German, alt means old. <laughs> so, of course, they're recycling all the old crap. And they certainly are fascists, white nationalists, white supremacists, and many of them are 
neo-Nazis. If not crypto, then even more overt, like Andrew Anglin at the Daily Stormer. The way they dress, the phrases that they use, like Lugenpresse, are all taken from an anti-Semitic 1930s context. There is new costume, right? right? There, there is a new form to this, and it comes out of, of course, uh, 4chan, uh, trolling culture, uh, meme culture. It comes from what online was originally male domain of pickup artists, which became sort of more virulent, misogynistic manosphere. And so there is some new form to it. It's not a completely useless word to make a distinction between uh, the alt-right and people like Georgiani and Richard Spencer as opposed to the old KKK. Um, it's, not, it's not exactly the same. Uh, but I think that when, when they make this critique, they, they do have a point because we don't want to also give them a pass. We don't want to say that it's something merely new. It's, it's merely a millennialist thing. It's merely an online thing. Mm -hmm. There really is an ideological uh, continuity here. Right. So even though the form might be a little different, the content is pretty much the same. That's right. And if you call them a Nazi, they get very super historicist about it. They said, oh, the Nazis. That was just from 1933 to 1945. Oh, Mussolini's in Italy. That was 1922 or something totally different. Well, just before he was socked, Richard Spencer said, the Nazis hate me. Sure. But then again, not all of them hate him. In fact, David Duke loves him. They all consider him his boy or, or their boy. Yeah, maybe some of the very sectarian uh, neo-Nazis who work in 4chan or 8chan chat rooms hate Spencer, but he's... Uh, garnered a lot of support from the traditional old uh, white nationalist right. Part of your point in doing this was that there are some similarities between the things these guys say, Giorgiani et al., and uh, your, your uh, typical social justice warrior on Twitter. I mean, there's a vegetarian angle. There are uncomfortable parallels with some parts of the modern left, aren't there? There are a few. I would not want to condemn things like political correctness out of hand. I think these are actual advances. Uh, I wouldn't want to uh, promote something like uh, a kind of alt-Marxism, which just poo-poos different social phenomena that have uh, nothing directly to do with class struggle. Uh, we also don't denigrate anything that could fall under the rubric of an identitarian struggle. There are actual minorities, actual what would be called subaltern identities, which actually are oppressed more than other people who might uh, also be in the working class or the, sure. or the middle class. And, and these struggles, which sometimes involve political correctness, uh, which certainly involve historical racial injustice, uh, historical justice against people of different uh, sexual orientation, women and gender, uh, these are important struggles and we don't, we don't denigrate that. Uh, what, what, what we're worried about is a sort of uh, theoretical excess. Okay? What we're worried about is saying that many of these struggles are sui generis. Uh, they exist in a completely self-encapsulated way. They have nothing to do with human emancipation at all. They have nothing to do with human flourishing as such. These are struggles only by specific particular identities, right. which cannot be understood from without, cannot really have authentic allies from anyone outside of those particular communities. I think this ends in, in, a, in a kind of bad tribalism for all of the good intentions that we suspect there are behind some of these uh, theoreticians. I was also thinking about uh, the condemnation of the Enlightenment as a tool of, to quote the sonic youth lyric, white male corporate oppression. Right, right. If people 
look at the history of Enlightenment ideas and see how they actually played out in the 18th, 19th, and even 20th centuries, they'll say that, or they'll see rather, how Enlightenment ideas helped to motivate uh, anti-colonial struggle, feminist struggle, socialist struggle. You can say that uh, Tuasson and the Haitian Revolution, according to C.L.R. James and the Black Jacobins, uh, that that struggle incarnated the best ideas of the Enlightenment. And in fact, it was in the vanguard of Enlightenment while all the European nations were in a period of reaction. I mean, and this is why in, in the article and, and subsequent ones as well, we don't simply carry the banner of the Enlightenment as such, but what uh, this, the intellectual historian Jonathan Israel called the radical Enlightenment. So to be sure, there was a moderate Enlightenment, and within this moderate Enlightenment, uh, there was an acceptance of the permanence of something like capitalism and, and mercantilism and free trade. There's an acceptance of racial discrimination and hierarchy. But in the radical Enlightenment, we have uh, what is in effect a dialectical self-critique, which ends up, as Harrison mentioned, in the Haitian Revolution, Revolution of Toussaint Louverture, in the philosophy, the proto-materialist philosophy of Baruch Spinoza as well, that ends up critiquing the very bourgeois capitalist societies, the very middle-class uh, ethos, which was the original home of Enlightenment ideas, goes on to critique itself and point to something more radical. And if you read Marx and Engels, even in their early work, like The Holy Family, and their chapters on the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, they see communism as the logical result of certain philosophical tendencies in French materialism, what Jonathan Israel calls the radical Enlightenment. And they see Gracchus Babouf, the first modern socialist, as someone who is a product of this intellectual culture. In fact, when Babouf went to trial under the directory in France, he said that Diderot and Helvetius and Malby, these were the, the sources of my socialism. And he was waxing sarcastic, that these are the philosophical poisons that have turned me against private property, that have turned me to overthrowing your corrupt society. And this is precisely what uh, Giorgiani is aiming his weapons at. Yes, and he's aiming them directly at Descartes and the Cartesian legacy, which Spinoza continues, the French materialists continue, and also, in a very broad sense, Marx and Engels continue, that in order to change the world, the world needs to be intelligible. You need to be able to know the world mm -hmm. and its essential structures before you can change it for the better. Which, again, is, is why Giorgiani is actually quite useful, right, in, in specifically trying to affirm a particularist, white, identitarian, racist politics. He understands very clearly and points out very clearly that the Enlightenment, that sort of universalist rationalism, is the enemy of this. And precisely by seeing the, the worldview that he discards... Uh, we can once again remember the worldview that we ought to affirm and that has been neglected within much of uh, philosophical academia in the past uh, half century. They want a liquidation of Enlightenment modernity. And like I said, Giorgiani is not alone in this. You see the same tendencies in Land and in Alexander Dugan. All the alt-right philosophers reject the Enlightenment legacy and modernity. They want its liquidation. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Those are Harrison Fluss, who teaches philosophy at St. John's University, and Landon Frim, who teaches it at St. Joseph's College. Their article on the philosophy of the alt-right is on Jacobin's website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of that Sonic Youth song I mentioned, Cool Thing. The voice that isn't Kim Gordon's is Chuck D's. Till next week, bye.
Something I gotta ask you. 